You're listening to Everyday Saints, a podcast from the Melbourne Anglican. I'm your host, Kiralee Nicole. My aim is to feature the stories from those of all different backgrounds in Melbourne and beyond. These stories, they might make us laugh, they might make us cry. My hope is that hearing a diverse range of stories will bring us closer together and better equip us to care for one another. So, without further ado, we hope you enjoy. I wonder, have you ever met one of those people who manages to be so articulate, precise and intriguing that as you speak to them, you can feel your worldview expanding? I think as a society, we tend to do a lot of hiding rather than sharing what we know. And I don't think it's a good thing. But it does mean that when you meet someone like Professor Anne Patel Gray, they seem to carry whole worlds of meaning and understanding within their being. Professor Patel Gray was recently appointed Professor of Indigenous Studies and inaugural head of the School of Indigenous Studies at the University of Divinity. In 1995, she was the first Aboriginal person to be awarded a PhD at the University of Sydney, published as The Great White Flood, Racism in Australia. She's previously held visiting professorships at Gurukul Theological Seminary, Harvard University, and Otago University. She's not only a very renowned academic, she's also an activist, a consultant, and a celebrated Aboriginal leader. And this is such an important conversation, so please keep listening, but I just want to give a warning. For those who've experienced issues of racism, I just wanted to give you a heads up, uh, because this episode might bring up traumatic memories. So, if that's the case, I am so sorry. And if you need to speak with someone, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Okay, so with that in mind, let's get to my chat with Anne Patel Gray. Thanks for joining me. Oh, you're welcome, love. When you're not working as a professor, um, what are you doing? Um, gosh, um, those lines kind of blur because uh, I love uh, reading and researching. So I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I'm gardening um, or out in the environment doing stuff, um, trying to yeah be one or maintain that spiritual connection to creation, you know? So yeah. Um, it's, it's full on. You don't find a lot of those times available, but uh, I try really hard to try to put that into my schedules because um, it kind of keeps me grounded and reminds me of the significance of, um, you know, God's call and, and the need to listen, you know. Mm. Tell me about your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up? And can you tell me a bit about your family and um, just your, your life growing up? Look, I was born in a small country town um, uh, west of Townsville, uh, near Mount Isa, actually, or south of Mount Isa, uh, called Winton. And there, you know, my family basically uh, you know aboriginal people were confined to the showgrounds on the 
periphery of um, white towns and um, you know they had humpies with dirt floors and you know look uh, people used to keep those old humpies you, you'd never seen dirt shine you know the way they kept it so clean and tidy <clears throat> and um, and then we've got our first uh, housing commission house and uh, we were still on the edge of town but we we're on this side of the creek and not the other side of the creek so we still wandered down there and and kept uh, connections to community and that but look growing up in a small town you know everyone knew it, each other yet the racism was still you know pretty amplified uh there it was okay to you know hang out and and do things but um, when it came to marriage and you know anything that was um yeah to do with white society um you know bringing in or respecting aboriginal people that just didn't happen and um you know my first experience of racism was when on my first week at school my first day of school in where the teacher uh, being the only black kid in the classroom and the teacher just badgered me horrifically and called me names and the kids were mocking me and and calling me names as well because he encouraged them to laugh at me and everything i ended up leaving the class and i was so traumatized by what had happened to me that i couldn't understand it i couldn't even begin to process why this teacher could be so cruel and malicious you know and uh, we had two-story buildings and uh, i was sitting underneath the steps just crying and traumatized and my older siblings came by to see how i was going and found me in this state and took me home and in those days i was very um what's the word introverted so i didn't say a lot and uh, very probably overly sensitive i don't know you know as a child of six um experiencing something like that is pretty traumatic and uh, they took me home and and told mum what i'd said and mum spoke to me and you know just loved me and put me into bed and called her sister and said you know come and sit with Anne. Uh, I've got things to do, you know. So I understood she went to the school and she just tore the, the principal, you know, called him out and said, you know, this is appalling that, you know, this little girl comes to school and this is the treatment. Wanted, demanded to know the name and everything. And anyhow, she, she was a power in her own right and uh, she got that person sacked uh, she called the state education and said no nah, this is not on and uh, so he lost his job but that was just the beginning of our trauma you know i think you know when you're a child under five or under six you know you're so protected by your family and um, you know that you don't even realize what's out there until you are made to go to school and that's your first encounter of that horrific racism you know and uh, you realize 
how much your family had protected you. And, um, and so, you know, along the way, we encountered my family, a lot of racism. We, we were Methodist, members of the Methodist Church, baptised and um, did confirmation and everything. And when I was 10, we moved to uh, Townsville because mum wanted us to have a better education. And, um, you know, from there, again, just encountering racism after racism. And a lot of the family, myself and my brother, were excellent sports persons. So we, you know, got praise given to us. My brother was ex an exceedingly um, excellent sports person. And, um, you know, but uh, academically we did all right too. But, um, yeah, it just didn't seem to matter that much. And um, when we were at high school, um, I did um, – whole academic math, science and everything because uh, I loved it and uh, I was um, in in the top 20 in the in the school and um, and did quite well and uh, this teacher my math teacher that I thought was just an incredible woman uh, on our last day of school at the end of the year one year uh, it was year 10 she asked students, you know, what do you want to do when you leave school? What's your, what's your dreams? What's your hopes? And yeah, they're going around. And um, again, you know, they when they came to me, I said to her, I want to go to university. And she just laughed at me and, and the rest of the school laughed at me too, the rest of the class. And she came over and patted me like a child and said, you know, Black people don't go to university. You, you're better off to learn what you can do with your hands and, and maybe not have such high expectations. And I was really angry and, um, and humiliated at this woman that I admired so much. At the end of the day, was no better than anybody else. She was racist too and had a very low expectations on my ability and my achievements that uh, it lit a spark inside my belly and I thought yeah well you'll see because I am going to drive that so every time I encountered that kind of negativity and that racism it just spurred me on to prove people wrong you know and uh, lo and behold I did I went and got my doctorate and everything else and um, you know, I sought that person out once I, I got the doctorate and found where she was and knocked on her door and told you, well, here I am, and showed her my degree. And I said, remember you told me that I would never, ever get to go to uni? And she burst out crying, you know, and, and she said, I am so sorry, you know, that I ever uttered those words to you. And I said, well, a bit too late now. And uh, I said, but I just wanted to come and show you that we Aboriginal people do have the intellectual capacity to go to university um, and that you didn't stop me, you know. So everything that you do, you learn in life, it's about you've got to fight. You've got to fight for every step that you take, every gain or achievement that you're able to succeed in. 
it's never given to you it's never made easy it's a fight all the way and you know you get to a point where sometimes you get exhausted you know the fighting but for me you know the fight within me is is a response to the call of God on my life and that God's called me to stand up and and to hold the church and people accountable you know that uh, you know through uh, God's son Jesus we got the living example of what we're called to do in discipleship and yet we fail to do this you know and uh, the hypocrisy that I see uh, of the church and, and government towards our people and how you know the Bible has been used as a weapon to subjugate us to oppress us to justify their evil and their violence against us I just want to say sorry I'm sorry that was your experience because I hear that yeah that you've had to fight this whole way but that shouldn't that shouldn't have to be the case and I just want to just go back to your your church background because you said um, you grew up in the Methodist church what was that like in terms of the racism um how did that kind of I imagine that was the place where your faith was sort of first shaped or your understanding of God was first shaped. How was that for a young Aboriginal person? What was interesting about growing up in the church is that I heard a white interpretation, biblical interpretation, that just didn't make sense to me. My theological and and faith and and Christianity was shaped by certain individuals. Um, A minister that baptised myself and and, um, my siblings and who married us, uh, a non-Indigenous person who had a major part in our life and influenced my faith because he represented everything the church wasn't you know the kindness the love the acceptance the encouragement you know everything that you would expect a church would do um, he did and so my faith was nurtured by him and my mother um, and my culture it wasn't nurtured by the church because the church required me to be submissive to be subjugated to be invisible to not have a voice and um, and as a woman i was even less than uh, as a girl child so the, the church just amplified to me the racism that i encountered every day and it, it it contaminated our our churches and our christian faith and um, on the way, God has brought to me sojourners who have travelled with me that have nurtured my faith, affirmed my faith in certain people. Um, you know, if it weren't for these non-Indigenous peoples that walked with me, like Reverend Bernie Clark, and John Brown, David Gill, and so on, Dean Drayton, um, I wouldn't have any hope 
um, that not all white people were racist, you know, um, because they affirmed to me the possibility of what this country could look like and how it could be transformed. And, you know, when called by God to be an agent of transformation, this is something the church has failed to do. Yet there are those non-Indigenous people who have the, the power of the spirit to walk alongside us and to call out injustices and to be prophetic, you know. Um, so they've been my hope in the sense of uh, engaging. And I've come to realise that, you know, we've got a church system that is in itself a bureaucracy that was structured and born out of colonialism that needs to now be transformed because we are not a colonial country and that colonial theology christianity faith is racist and if we're ever going to be you know one in christ then that's got to be eradicated and a new faith a new way of being a new way of being church has to be created and and nurtured um you know because the colonial church uh, the church today, as it's inherited a colonial view and structure that ensures the maintenance of white privilege, power and wealth at, the, at our cost. And, um, and that's not what Christ represented. That's not what Jesus Christ represented. Jesus Christ was on the margins with the poor, with the downtrodden, the outcasts. And the church is not there, which is pretty sad. We, we've, you know, we've set up all of this capitalism and everything else, this wealth that we want to now protect, rather than, you know, look at using that wealth to feed the poor, you know, to house the homeless, and uh, you know, all of the other uh areas that uh people suffer in an encounter today it's it's pretty sad you know when one's wealth and and power is far more important than god's call just going back to um you were saying about how your faith was shaped by these key people and your mother and your culture um and you've you've spoken a little bit about um your mother and what she was like and a bit about those people but i'm really interested in in the culture, how how does Indigenous culture nurtured your faith, and mm. what are the what are the what are the things about Indigenous culture that you think are really lacking in the church, and what are yeah how how has that impacted you? Look, the one thing that uh, I love about my culture is that we don't judge people for what they do or what they have. What's more important is a person's character, their integrity, their honesty, their care, their love, their generosity. All of these things are more important to us. And, and that's what we as a culture look at each other on the basis of your self-worth, what you bring to the table. Now, you know, integrity and honesty and truth and all of these things 
you're either born with it or you're not born with it. You know what I mean? These are things that are nurtured and sustained as you grow in the community and the family that you grew up in. And what I found is in my community, those things were of a greater value than one's wealth. And, um, you know, we didn't have anything, but by gosh, we had integrity, we had honesty, and we would care for our people. And that generosity of heart is what you even still see today amongst our people. You know, the, the Uluru statement, how more of a testimony can that be a statement from the heart. What does that say? That talks about my people's generosity to reach out to non-Indigenous people again in, in a symbol of extension of friendship, of wanting to be accepted for non-Indigenous people to take our hand and to see us, to hear us and to find value and worth in who we are and what we bring to the table. This, this is what I grew up with, and this is what I haven't seen in the church. This is what's lacking in the church. The church wants to judge. They wanna say who gets a seat at the table. You know, they wanna say, oh no, you can sit here, but no, you gotta get back there. You know what I mean? You, you can't have a seat at this table. Um, you know, oh, you're not the right uh, colour, you're not the right, you know, gender or you're not the right, um, you know, uh, you don't have the right sexual preference and so on and so on. But they've always got reasons as to why people can't get a seat at the table. Whereas with my people, it doesn't matter who you are. If you come with a good heart, you come with integrity, you come with, you know, um, an attitude of caring, you'll always have a seat at the table. No one's ever excluded, even though the, that table is not heavy laden with food, but uh, we give what we can to, to each other. That's what I learned. That's what Jesus Christ taught me and what I saw in my culture that was reflected the the more genuineness of what Jesus Christ was talking about, you know. And what I saw, Jesus's criticism of the bureaucracy, both government and church, and that's what I saw in our government and church, is that hypocrisy, that judgment that Jesus talked about and called out, you know. It's like we never learnt anything, really, you know. Jesus' death and suffering and crucifixion didn't teach us dit, you know, uh, because we overlooked the fact of who put him on the cross and why Jesus was put on the cross, you know what I mean? We jump that story and we go to, oh, we're all saved because Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, that's great, but, hey, what about the reason why he was crucified, you know what I mean? Where does our integrity sit when it comes to our faith? You know, does it sit on the principles of Jesus Christ or does it sit on the, the, the uh, colonial ideals of wealth and privilege and power? It sounds to me like 
the indigenous understanding of faith is is sort of much more communal um, mm, very much more of an individualistic yeah um, it's a collective yeah we're collective. collective yeah we see ourselves as a collective we're not individuals what i do uh, in my daily life has to benefit all my people not just me and uh, and therefore that's how we work and we respond um, sadly there are those that have been conditioned by the dominant culture to be individualistic but i i hope like most of us that our family bring us back to earth and say hey this is how we live this is who we are and uh, and don't forget it you know mm. Imagine I, I don't want to, you know, put words in your mouth, but um, I can imagine that growing up in in the society that you described and and watching kind of um, things stay very uh, separate in the church, I guess, between um, white Australians and Aboriginal Australians. How how do you find that sounds like a lot of grief to just see things not really change and not really shift over time. Would you say that grief is a is a big part of being, I guess, being an, an Indigenous Australian Christian? Probably not. Well, grief is very much a part of our reality, but trauma is too. And I think it's the trauma that comes with the racism. Uh, the way we are treated and marginalised in the workplace and the community and the church, that inflicts trauma upon us. And, you know, when you look at the intergenerational trauma that's inherited through as a result of colonisation and what's happened throughout the generations, one can understand. But, you know, uh, the, 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 the wonderful thing that I love about my people is that in the midst of their grief and their loss and their trauma, they find hope um, and, and laughter and joy at being together and, you know, probably even just mocking, you know, some of our experiences because I, I think it's our sense of humour that's enabled us to survive uh, in, in the face of such atrocities that have happened uh, we don't forget them we carry them with us they're like scars deep, deep inside us um, but at the same time we're able to look for those little things that bring joy and happiness and treasure them uh, because they have greater value for us um, in the midst of our trauma you know what I mean uh, we value them more um, so when we're looking for those opportunities to create that, one of the hardest things that I think that we find, you know, that our liberation or redemption is so bound to the redemption of white society, you know. My redemption is tied to your redemption. If you're not redeemed, I can't be redeemed. And this is the message we try to tell our people, you know, our salvation and redemption is tied one to another. And how we treat each other is critical 
to the basis of that redemption. So we've got to together eradicate those structures, you know, colonial structures, economics, those things that divide us. We've got to name them and eliminate them in order that we can create a world where, you know, Aboriginal people are moved from the periphery to the centre and where we can get a seat at the table but also have our voices heard um, and to be able to influence decisions around our destiny and that of our children. This is something that has never happened before and it's just critical that it's time for us to do that. And it can't happen unless we can change the hearts of white people. It can't happen. So, you know, the statement from the heart is trying to touch and, and melt those hardened hearts and open them up to the possibilities of what our future could look like together, where both of us find redemption, but we find hope and we find um, friendship and a relationship. And that to me is just so important, you know, mm. where we can share our wisdom. You know, 110,000 years Aboriginal people have been on this continent. And you imagine the wealth of knowledge, expertise, wisdom that has come out of that long history and life living on this country. You know, no other country in the world can state we have the oldest living culture in our land. And yet that is something Australia has not embraced, has not respected and hasn't found value in, which is pretty sad. Mm. And in your in your career um, as a theologian and, and now at the University of Divinity, how how have you sort of sought to bring transformation of the kind that you're describing? How how have you sort of what are some of the ways that you've sought to live out your faith in that way? Look, you know, for the University of Divinity to give us this opportunity of establishing the School of Indigenous Studies is, is the first step. We now have access and entry into theological education. Theological education in this country was the last bastion of white supremacy. Aboriginal people could not access it, could not influence it. And now through the School of Indigenous Studies, we now have that opportunity. We have an opportunity to bring that knowledge, that wealth, our biblical interpretations, our theology to the table. We have an opportunity to influence theological education in this country, you know, and, and raise questions that we've got to wrestle with in this society you know for example how do you do theology on stolen land what does your theology challenge you how, how, how does it address that reality that you are inheritors of stolen land surely your theology's got to speak into this in in some sense of justice and challenge the other aspect that we have an opportunity to wrestle with is 
what does it mean to be an, a, a colonial inheritor of this power, this structure, this wealth that was taken from the First Nations? Uh, and, and how does your theology speak into that? What is What is your understanding of God got to say? How does that challenge you? So these are the questions that we Christians need to be wrestling with in these countries because they're at the heart of our faith. You know, while we continue to ignore them, this cancerous rot eats away at our integrity and morality, you know, as, as this big lie that no one wants to touch. And we Christians should be leading the way into this conversation because this is what we're called to do. I can't understand why the church isn't being more prophetic, you know, uh, in this day and age to show the leadership that is needed to lead a nation to justice, to where it needs to be. The church have a God-given mandate to do that and they're failing to do it. It's, it paints a sad picture, so I'm, I'm surprised you can still sort of find the hope that, you know, there is there is a vision, but it's just there's a long way to go. Um, and as you say, this it sounds like there's the first step is, is what you're doing now. Um, and I, I wanted to know for people who are young Christians or new to the faith, whether it's coming from really a colonial background like mine or a, a Indigenous culture um, or indeed any other culture. Um, Australia is full yep. of many, many cultures, but yep. kind of coming to coming to sort of grow in their faith and trying to understand how we not only dignify all the other cultures around us, but actually really embrace and well really what you're describing is just coexist with this um this sense of of community but also respect of each other's backgrounds and each other's look views. you know how, how what would you describe as like how would you say they should what are the steps they can take look to me it's the it's the the next generation that is the hope I'm enthused by young people like yourself that are reaching out and, and there's a large number of young people who are reaching out, wanting to, they're not prepared to carry the baggage anymore for the previous generation. They're not, in, not prepared to carry the sin. They want to deal with it. They want to name it. They want to deal with it. They want to challenge it. But most importantly, they want to change it. They want a different world for themselves and their future. And that, to me, gives me courage and hope because, you know, it's always through the young people that transformation happens. You, the young generation, are the, the next generation of leaders. And if I can do my job well, I will equip you, I will give you the skill sets, the knowledge and, and support you and mentor you to take up the, the sword of righteousness to bring about the transformation. That's where my hope is because I tell you what, 
I'm impressed with the young people today because they're not prepared to sit back and to be submissive in inheriting this history and this attitude. They want change. You, you're giving a voice to people that have been silenced for 235 years. That is powerful. That is powerful. And that needs to be acknowledged. You know what I mean? It sounds like really just just hearing others, really listening to others is is a big part of um, what could change in faith um, when we actually do respect one another fully. Yeah, I mean, it starts with a conversation and uh, and it's through conversation that we get to know one another. Then all of a sudden I become a human being. I'm no longer this thing out there that I have no contact with or no relationship with that I can easily ignore or make them visible. All of a sudden you have a relationship. You can put a, a, a voice, a name, an image to that person, to that issue. And it changes because all of a sudden you say, oh, no, 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 that's that's not acceptable. You know what I mean? I have a relationship here now. I, I'm friends. So there's a whole paradigm shift that takes place when you can forge relationships. And conversations are the first one. And the voice is very important to be heard. And, um, you know, that's what the referendum's about. It's about hearing the voice of First Nations people speaking into our government and into, you know, our society about what is best for us and our destiny. That doesn't take away from any individual uh, their rights or their position or their economics. It just gives us a voice to be heard. No longer will we be silent. And, and that's what we're asking Australia. Please vote yes, because hear our voice, hear our pain. We want to be heard. We want to be recognised. But most of all, we want to be embraced. We want to be a part of this society. And we want truth to be our agenda that you and I both embrace and that for once and for all, we expose the lies. A lot of our Western theology or our Western faith tends to be very issues based. It's we, we confront even even the way we do theology, we confront an issue and we sort of go, well, what does the Bible say about that? Or, you know, we, we come up with what we think the Bible says. Um, or we come up with what our community, somebody key in our community has said, and then we move on. But it doesn't seem to have a lot of room for storytelling. It seems to me that that's something we could really learn from the Indigenous community is, is the power of storytelling in theology. Um, oh, I agree with you, agree with you. There's some wonderful theologies that are emerging that are based on storytelling, you know. Um, Denise Champion's uh, book and uh, Rainbow Theology and, and others. And uh, storytelling is, is a beautiful narrative and, and you only got to look at the, the Gospels eh, to see the storytelling there through Jesus, um, you know, and how we learn from that. And um, to me, it's, it's, it's when we can sit and listen to each other's stories do we find the basis of... of um, have it to say, respect um, and and 
learnings that come out of those stories. You know, some of those stories may be challenging, they may be confronting, they may be, you know, hard to wrestle with, but, you know, you can't have growth without pain. You can't have growth and, uh, and gosh, we need to, to mature and grow as a nation more so than ever. And uh, we need to take these hard yards now to become a nation that we all can be proud of, that we no longer have to hide or keep secret our past and uh, that we can address it with integrity and set the record straight and do justice. Well, thank you so much for letting me hear your story. Oh, you're welcome. I I hope that there are many more stories like yours that people take the time to listen to and learn from and it's it's such a heard faith journey but it's really really worthwhile and i'm really glad that you've taken the time to share it with me so you're welcome thank you thank you so much thank you for the opportunity god bless you've been listening to everyday saints Everyday Saints is hosted and edited by me, Carolina Cole, with help from Elspeth Kernibone, Michelle Harris, Janan Taylor, and Maya Pilbrow. Graphics by Julian Karajic. If you have a suggestion for our podcast, please email me directly at knicole at melbourneanglican.org.au.